We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information. Well, welcome, everybody. It is 2 o'clock, so um, if you're just joining us, feel free to chime in in the chat where you're from and what your role is, whether you're a classroom teacher or um, what do you do at your school site, but we are so thrilled that you're able to join us today in honor of the up upcoming documentary, Judy Bloom Forever. We are going to be talking about developing young storytellers with our esteemed panel. So my name is Derry Stevens. I'm a lifelong educator. I taught for over 10 years in the classroom, and then I've worked in children's television and ed tech designing award-winning programming. I'm a published author, nowhere esteemed as those we have joining us today, but I really do love the art of storytelling, and I loved, I adored always teaching creative writing to kids. But let's get to why we're here today. Judy Bloom is a renowned and beloved children's and adult author. She's been writing for over six decades. So I thought we'd start with a poll. What is your favorite Judy Bloom title. Go ahead and vote here and submit your vote. And then if you want to in the chat, you could chime in as to why you picked that particular title, why it was memorable to you. And I always like seeing this in real time. I get the <laughs> Tales of Fourth Grade Nothing was her first book. I distinctly remember Tiger Eyes as being one of those like, oh, books when I hit my teenage years. A lot of you are saying that she's a childhood icon for you all. But we have two that almost seem to be tied. This is amazing. <laughs> so we'll close out of that. And now... I'm like little kid excited to share this next piece with you. Um, Judy Bloom, I can't not say her whole name. Judy Bloom actually recorded a quick video for you all as a welcome. So we're going to play that. Hi, it's me, Judy Bloom, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this webinar. Thank you for taking the time to join us. You know, there's no greater gift than to help unlock a child's authentic voice and encourage them to become writers and tellers of their very own stories. I'm so honored to think that my life's work will help you inspire the next generation of creative writers. If you haven't already watched it, make a note in your calendars that the documentary, Judy Bloom Forever, directed by Emmy-winning filmmakers Davina Pardo and Leah Walchuk, comes out on Prime Video on April 21st. I hope you enjoy it. And thank you for all you do on a daily basis for our kids. I had the same response as one of you in the chat where you were like, oh, Judy Bloom. I was like, it's really her. She's talking to us. <laughs> Judy's an icon to so many, um, spanning multiple generations. But did you know she began writing at age 27 she has written 29 books, which have resulted in selling more than 90 million copies. She loves purple. And so I was so excited to see she actually had a purple shirt on in the video she did for us. She's scared of thunderstorms. 
And she now runs a bookstore with her husband called Books and Books in Key West, Florida. And there are so many fun facts like this I was pulling out of the documentary. So I encourage you all to mark your plan books for April 21st. So with that in mind, let me share um, the trailer right now. My daughter said, Mother, couldn't you write a book about teenagers who fall in love and do it and nobody has to die? And I thought, yes. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. I felt like someone was being honest. That's a gift. That's magic. There was this moment where, wow, like Judy's talking to me. I read Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing. I read Dini. I like the blubber. This is my favorite book. I grew up as a good girl with a bad girl lurking inside. So by the time I started to write, I really had a lot to get out. I could be fearless in my writing in a way that maybe I wasn't always in my life. It was the first book I had read about wanting to grow boobs and the myths around how to get them and what to do. Everything I learned about sex or crushes, I learned from Judy. Let's all say it. Masturbation. Let's raise our hands if we masturbate, everybody. Oh, Judy. We can take time, taking the rain. Overnight, the censors came out of the woodwork. Forever is banned year after year. Margaret gets banned because it talks about bras. I think the kids have a right to read and to get honest answers to their questions. Dear Judy, Dear Judy, Dear Judy, today was the worst day. I have a million problems. Kids opened up to me in a way that they couldn't to their parents. And I would answer. This is the first letter I got from Judy. That was the beginning. We wrote for many years. She allowed young women to be as complicated and messy and funny as we are. I had that recognition of, I trust you, and wherever you're going, I'm down to come with you. I don't think that Judy Bloom wrote her books to be timeless. I think she wrote her books to be timely, and they were so timely that they became timeless. That woman, Lori, who was featured, she and Judy were pen pals for years, and Judy actually went to her graduation. Like, that's how tied she is to her readers, which I found fascinating. So I'm thrilled today that we have three amazing panelists for today's conversation. Leah Walchuk is an Emmy award-winning writer and director. She's directed several short films, but do check out her first feature documentary, Very Semi-Serious, which is a portrait of New Yorker cartoonists, another group of storytellers. She is proud to have co-directed the soon-to-be-released Judy Bloom Forever, but her biggest accomplishment to date is being a mom to her two children. So welcome, Leah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> We're thrilled to have you. Bat Scales is an author, an advocate, and an adjunct professor. Now retired, she began her career as a school librarian in 1970. She has served as past chair of not only the Newbery Award Committee, but also the Caldecott Award Committee, which makes my children's heart literature heart flutter, just to name a few. Um, and she's working on a bunch of new reading guides for Judy Bloom titles. So welcome, Pat. Thank you for joining us. And we also have a name that you will probably recognize. Cecily Von Zegazer, um is the author of the beloved Gossip Girl book series that was made into the ever popular TV series which was just re-released for round two with a new cast for a new generation in 2021. Her most recent book title, Cobble Hill, just came out last year, and we're so excited to have you here as well, Cecily. Thank you. It's great to be here. 
So we're going to close the slides now so we can focus on you three. And the first question I have for all of you is, why did you agree to participate in the documentary Judy Bloom Forever? Like, where did your interest, or should I say admiration, for Judy Bloom begin? Well, I'm going to start. I was not in front of the camera, but my co-director, Davina Pardo, this film was her baby. She grew up on Judy Bloom books, and she rediscovered them when her kids discovered them about five years ago. And Davina and I worked together on Very Semi-Serious, and she asked me if I wanted to direct the film with her about Judy. And I said, Davina, I'm, I'm kind of ashamed to tell you. Um, I'm like the only woman of our generation who did not grow up on Judy Bloom books. And are you sure you want me? I'm not a fangirl. Like, do you want me to really make this film with you? She said, listen, just go online. You can find a video of Judy. Just watch a couple minutes of Judy telling a story. Tell me what you think. So I, I watched Judy's masterclass on children's book writing. And I think I texted Davina two minutes in and I was like, I'm in. Like I, this, I, I, so I fell in love with Judy as a storyteller before I even really got to know her work. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida in the eighties when Judy's books were banned. They're still banned in my hometown. Forever was just banned again um, in the last month. And I, I was a very shy kid. I think I was very modest about my body. I internalized, I think a lot of the shame surrounding periods and puberty and growing up. And so I didn't want to do the wrong thing. And so I did not read the taboo Judy Bloom books. I wish I had. I wish my 11-year-old flat-chested self had read Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. It would have completely changed how I felt about my body and my friends, my religion, my parents. Um, so I'm really grateful that Davina <laughs> invited me to make the film with her because getting to know Judy and all the people that we interviewed for the film has been really extraordinary. And I have to say, I am like Judy, very emotional. And when I saw all of your names show up in the chat and all of the states that you represent, I was getting really emotional just thinking of all the people who are here watching today. So thank you for being here. Um, and Leah, thank you for making such an amazing film. Um, I actually get, I get emotional just sort of like looking at a picture of Junie Blue, <laughs> let alone, I mean, watching the trailer for the movie just now, I like feel emotional and then, uh, well, everything just, I mean, I got to see a screening of the film, um, and I hadn't realized, you know, all of that stuff about her communication with her readers, all that was amazing. Um, but so I was asked to join in, um, I guess because my, a uh, former Gossip Girl editor was like out to dinner or something with one of the producers and she was, they were just sort of chatting about the making of this Judy Bloom documentary. And my editor was like, oh, you have to talk to Cecily. And I, I think she was probably imagining me already like reading forever out loud in front of a camera. Um, <laughs> but, um, and then when I was uh, speaking to the producer on the phone, I guess in a sort of screening call, or um, I think I, I just could not stop gushing about the books. And I had already started rereading them, knowing that she was going to call. And um, for me, um, reading Judy Bloom, reading Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, in, I guess, elementary school, and then uh, Deanie and Forever, and all of the books in um, middle school, like having an older sister and you know, I grew up with boys I had brothers there was no one to talk to 
Um, and, um, and then just as a young adult writer, she paved the way. It was like, well, she wrote about it. I can. Um, so it's really, it's just such an honor to be part of this. And I'm just thrilled to be here now today talking about the film. And it's just, it's an honor. How about for you, Pat? Um, well, I read Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, when it first came out in 1970. And two years later, I came here, and I, I was in a middle school and as librarian, and there was not a single copy. And, uh, of course, I bought it. And pretty soon I had to have 10 hardback copies, and then when it came out in paperback, more. And we had a book fair that first year I was here, and I sold 115 copies of Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, in one afternoon. Um, the kids were just flocking to it. So I guess I, I have to say that, you know, I came to Judy Bloom through the kids. Um, then later, um, I had my students called her and we interviewed her and we actually have tapes of those interviews. Um, and then I met her for the first time in 1976 at, at a Newberry Caldecott banquet. And her publisher had asked me to come and sit with them. And so that was the first time I met her. And then um, early 80s, I wrote an article about a parent program I had started, and I had introduced all of Judith's books through that program, and the parents just lapped it up. And, um, and she read the article and uh, wrote to me, and, and the rest is history. <laughs> We've been friends since. Insanely jealous that you can say Judy Bloom is a friend of yours. <laughs> Um, this is another question for you all. In the upcoming documentary, Judy shares, quote, I didn't grow up thinking I was going to be a writer, but I always had stories inside my head. So curious as to what started you all off on your journey to being storytellers and how did you make it into a career? I'll take that one. Um, <laughs> uh, I never really wanted to do anything else. I, I absolutely wanted to be a writer from... Um, I guess the moment that I could even read, um, and uh, it's very frustrating for my teenagers for them to hear that you know, like, how did you know what you wanted to do? And I basically say, like, I don't know how to do anything else, um, which is you know irritating to them. But um, I spent the summers at a house, a farm on a river in Canada, and we didn't have a television, and we didn't have internet at the time. We didn't have computers. We certainly didn't have phones. Um, and so I read to entertain myself. Um, and, you know, besides all the other like summer stuff that you do, like swimming in the river or whatever. Um, and um, I just always, I wanted to do that too. I wanted to entertain um, by writing stories. And I think the, the first like pulling story that I wrote was called um, Brooke Shields and the Three Hells Angels. Um, and that was in I think sixth grade. Um, but I would also turn all my school papers into stories. Um, and so I would basically like not do the assignment. I mean, even in college, I remember I had to write a paper on Hamlet. I was an English major. And I, I wrote a story about a boy in boarding school who wakes up face down in a football field. I mean, I, would, I was forever like not doing the assignment and just sort of doing my own thing. Um, but, and I, I didn't know how to become how to get paid for writing. So I went into publishing um, and I was 
first an editorial assistant and then um, an editor. Um, but I was very lucky I got to um, develop, I was given sort of the task of developing a series. Um, and I, again, like didn't really follow the assignment and just sort of made it my own. Um, and uh, somebody at Little Brown was interested in publishing it. And after reading the um, pages that I, I was sort of like, well, this is what it should sound like. Um, then she said, well, I don't, I don't want anyone else to write it. You have to write it. And so I got very, very lucky. Um, and I sort of kept, I kept my job for sort of the first couple of Gossip Girl books, but then I realized that if they were going to come out twice a year, um, that I needed to be writing full time, but I was incredibly lucky. I love that you were a rogue writer since an early age. Yeah. <laughs> Pat or Leah? Say Leah or Pat? Either one. Well, okay. Um, well, I've, I've, I don't really write fiction, but um, I guess you could call, in some cases, creative nonfiction. Uh, for years, I wrote the back page editorial for Bootlinks magazine. And, and I guess I would have to say, I always had a point to make about kids and reading or kids and censorship, kids and all kinds of things, but I actually pulled on my own childhood a lot and, and also pulled on uh, stories of kids that I worked with as I made my points in these editorials. So I, I guess, you know, that's how I, I still, when I, I, I still write that way using those examples. So it's funny when we started talking to Judy and she would tell us how she has total recall and she can remember every detail of her childhood, what her third grade classroom smelled like, what the teacher was wearing on that day in June. I mean, I started feeling really insecure because my memory is really lacking. And I thought, I don't know, can you be a storyteller and not have like this total recall of your every event of your life? Um, but I do remember my first short story that I wrote in fifth grade and I, it was made into a little performance by the High School of the Arts in my town in Jacksonville. We did not know, and we, we all the elementary school students of my school were brought to the auditorium for a play, and we did not know what the play was, but the there were two plays, and one was based on my short story, and one was based on this other girl, Jenny Ballerini's short story. And I thought mine was terrible. I basically transcribed a nature documentary I had seen on TV. I, it wasn't even creative. I remember the beginning of the story was like an image I had seen of a scuba diver diving into the water. And that was the start of the story. And I don't really remember much else, but I remember Jenny's story was so creative. It was the satire of the three little pigs. She had completely changed the narrative. And I, I remember thinking, I'm not, I don't know. I felt again, insecure. I guess that's going to be a little theme of this webinar, but about my own creativity. Um, I was definitely a math. I, I was really into math and science. I started out in college as a science major. My advisor was like a biochemistry professor. And I remember our first meeting, like, I don't think he made eye contact with me. And I realized there's no human connection here. I don't think this is for me. I became an English major like Cecily. I did write the papers I was supposed to write because I was still a good girl, <laughs> I guess. I wish I had been a little more of a rebel. Um, but I think there was something about spending weeks at a time analyzing like one stanza of one poem that 
made me feel a little frustrated that we were really so sort of secluded in the ivory tower. So when I discovered documentary film in a in a documentary film class in college, and it felt like these were more these are real people telling real stories, I knew that was the type of storytelling I wanted to make. I wanted to do. So I think that's sort of where my storytelling path began. It's awesome. I love hearing the backstories of how people found their passions and and used it for a life career. Um, Cecily, I have a question for you. Judy Bloom is known for her candid voice and her ability to tell the truth and address really sensitive topics for kids. Um, one child in the docu- documentary aptly puts it and says how well um, she has children and adults, quote unquote, cope with each other. So curious for you, how would you describe your voice in your books? Um, I really try to get inside my characters' heads and inhabit them. In, in the case of Gossip Girl, um, the books um, take place senior year of high school, so the characters are 17-year-olds. Um, and I mean, I remember my readers always saying to me, or they still say, um, how do you know so much about us? <laughs> and um, you know, the, the, your characters sound exactly like me and my friends, um, which I think is an enormous compliment. But also, I, I was sort of you know, when the books first came out, I wrote the first book when I was uh, 30, maybe even 29. Um, and so I would sort of say, well, it wasn't that long ago, really, um, <laughs> that I was 17. And and actually, like Judy, I don't, I wouldn't know. I would never claim to have total recall, but it just doesn't feel that long ago. I do remember. Um, and I remember um, what I was thinking about and what I was scared of and what I, um, the, the things that I thought sort of obsessively about. Um, and, um, and I tried to give my characters those same feelings. But also, I, I really feel that um, reading, I, I think of myself as a writer, but I also think of myself as an entertainer. Um, and I want people to, I want my readers to have a good time when they're reading my books. I want people to have a good time when they're reading, period. Um, <laughs> but, so I, I want, I, I, I hope that um, I'm writing books that will be gobbled up and that my readers will laugh out loud and that they'll want to read more. And I don't, I, my personal feeling is that like that sort of like binge watching a show and reading my books is it's, the same thing, you know, it's like you just want, you want to keep reading, you want more. Um, so uh, I, I hope that my voice is very approachable and entertaining. That's a good segue into my next question. When you talk about um, being an entertainer of sorts, why do you think artistic expression is so important, especially for children? And happy to have anybody on the panel address that, having that creative outlet, if you will. I think writing, creative writing is much like even art, any art form, or maybe it's visual arts as well, but it helps them to get in touch with their deeper feelings um, in a way that they may not even know they can do uh, until they start exploring through writing or through art. Agreed. I, I also think that, like, creative, I mean, any kind of creative expression would be like dance or art or um, theater, 
film and uh, reading um, or books um, is a sort of, it's like a combination of like, um, they're all valid, right? I mean, it's like all of a sudden you're presenting children with something and they're like, oh, you know, here's here's the human, here's something that I felt, here's some sort of shared expression. Um, and it's, it's it becomes validating, right? I mean, they're they're feeling like maybe they're not so weird. Somebody else had these weird thoughts. <laughs> and um, somebody else makes people laugh. Somebody else is sad. Somebody, you know, it's, that, it's, it's I, I, I guess I feel that artistic expression is the best way of communicating the human experience. Kat, I have a question for you in particular. Um, March is known as National Reading Month, and tomorrow, March 14th, is National Write Your Story Day. So curious, what kind of opportunities do you think educators should and could give to help to kids to help them become better storytellers? Well, you can, you can um, teach them to listen. You can teach them to observe. Um, and um, I think and providing, the, giving great writing prompts to help them, you know, along the way. Um, I can I can tell you that one of the things that I would do, even with um, upper elementary, middle school, all the way into high school, there are tons of wordless picture books out there. And some of them are very good. They teach sequencing a lot. But you could hand them a wordless picture book and have them write a text. And, and so that them along the way early on. Um, you might also uh, have them interview an older member of the family or an older member of the neighborhood and then have them tell a story. Everybody has story. Everybody. Uh, and, and then have them recount that story and embellish it somewhat. So I would ask them to call on their senses. Um, I, I have a favorite book that, that someone gave me many years ago and it's called one writer's beginnings by eudora welty and and it she it's essays that she wrote um many years ago and one is called listening and uh one is called um speaking and uh and one is called seeing and and she talks just about that very thing that we need to call on our senses and so I think it's all in how we ask questions to the kids. Um, we need to guide them. We, we need to give. I, I'm hesitant sometimes to ever ask them, how, do, how would you do this differently if they haven't had the life experience to know yet? So I would, I would do things that they know. We need to start them where they are with what they know. Agreed. I used to have um, third graders read, it's not a novel idea, but rewrite the ends of stories. And then when Gregory, Gregory Maguire came out with Wicked, I was like, oh, new point of view. Like, how, how great is that? Um, One of the things that I suggest, too, that I did uh, for a lot of years, and I had various reasons for doing this, but I like to really connect the reading and the writing a lot. And I would have them to remain anonymous and uh, write a paragraph about the book they would most want their parent to read and why. And um, and I did ask them to put their age. This is how I developed the bibliographies I used with my parent program. 
but I didn't want that age. I mean, I didn't want their name because I wanted them to feel free to write. It's amazing how well they express themselves. They all could tell. They all had a book. They all had a reason, and they expressed it very well. So you can do that all along the way. You can start early with them. I love that. Mm-hmm. Would would love to hear from you all around what what is some of the other advice you have to children wanting to hone their creative writing or their video production skills. Basically, there's so many ways to tell stories in our multimedia world these days. You can become a writer, a musician in a matter of minutes with the technology we have today. So what's what's some advice you have for helping kids either get started or grow their passion? Uh, I can I can try to start. So a couple of weeks ago, I volunteered at my middle schoolers middle school book fair, which was really different than an elementary school book fair because that, you know, an elementary school book fair, parents are coming in and picking out. I mean, Pat, you can tell us better than anyone, but p- parents are coming in and choosing the books for their kids. The kids are coming in too, but a lot of times the parents are welcome. This was no parents were coming into the school. The middle schoolers were just browsing and our local bookstore was the one that sponsored this book fair. And I got to talking to one of the sixth graders who came in and she was like, I love to write, but I don't read. I do not like reading. And I wanted to tell her, how can you be a writer without being a reader? Like, that's the way you learn. And then I I listened to an interview that Jason Reynolds did recently. And I will quote him throughout this webinar because I think he's absolutely brilliant. And he was the young person's he was an ambassador for young persons literature for I think two years. Just just finished his um, his post, but he said the fastest way to lose a child is to tell a child to read. And I thought, okay, so what? So I actually have. I mean, I think everyone on this webinar probably knows a lot better than I do. I'm just a parent. I've never been an educator other than educating my own kids with their mom. But I mean, I aspire to be an educator. Um, you know, how do you, how does a, how does a writer develop their voice without reading? I'm kind of curious, like, how do you encourage, you know, a a kid to read if they're really interested in writing their own stories, which are actually more important at this age for a sixth grade girl to feel like her journaling every day and her storytelling every day. That to me seems almost more important than like forcing her to read something. So I guess I'm answering your question with a question for maybe people can write in the chat or maybe our other panelists can answer in their, you know, from their own experience. I mean, I would say that the best way to hone your writing skills is to read, but um, if Jason Reynolds, I mean, I would never for, you know, think that you could force anyone to read anything. Um, But I also, well, one of the favorite part, things for me in the documentary is um, when it, so many people in the documentary smell the books. And so I have this thing, <laughs> it's sort of like the kids being at the book fair, like that sort of, I think of reading as being this very tangible thing. It's like a whole body experience and just like having books in your hands is really important. Um, so I, I also think it's really important that if you're going to read that you read not on a screen and you, I mean, I, maybe I'm really old fashioned, but you actually hold books in your hands. Um, and I also, um, 
maybe reading isn't just books. Maybe it's also, I mean, I get inspiration from just like little snippets of things, you know, like I might see something written on a, some graffiti written somewhere or whatever, but I guess just being like open and observant and um, letting, um, I mean, I, I guess that's reading too, right? You know, and it's also writing, um, just keeping your, your mind open and allowing yourself to be inspired. Um, I think I, think I know what Jason said. You can't tell them to read. Um, uh, but we can lead them to read. And I think that's the difference. You don't tell them, but we lead them to good books. And um, another, to me, very important, I don't know how you can be a writer without reading either, but I, I think that um, we have to give kids the permission to reject a book. Too often as adults, as teachers, as parents, we want to tell them exactly what we think they should be reading. And, and what we need to lead them toward is what they want to be reading. And, and there's a big difference. So I, I always just said to the kids, you know, there are too many good books to try to plow through one you don't like, put it back. And, and honestly, sometimes they may reject a book and six months later come back to it. So I think I know what Jason means when he says we can't tell them to read, um, we, but we can lead them to read. Yeah, I mean, I also think a lot of times, yeah, it's like they haven't found the book that they haven't found what they like to read yet, but eventually they'll find it. Um, I mean, my I, my son was a very slow to read until he found a series of books that he loved. And then in third grade, you couldn't keep him from reading. Um, and my books have always been on reluctant readers lists. Um, I think maybe because they are entertaining um, and fun and um, sound like it sounded at least like people who were currently in high school. Um, but there's something for everyone. There are a lot of books out there. There are a lot. That was my teacher. God, I, I would wonder if that middle schooler had found, just found that author that she, you know, identified with. Um, another question for you guys. Recently in the press, there's been a lot about Roald Dahl and Penguin's revised copy of many of his titles. So Judy Bloom has been very active on the topic of censorship because many of her um, books, not because, but as many of her books have ended up on banned book lists. She has said, quote, I think the kids have a right to read. They have a right to know. They have a right to get honest answers to their questions and banning a book isn't going to change any of that. So curious what your stan personal stance is on censorship and banning books. In general, are about Royal Doll. <laughs> <laughs> you can answer any way you see fit. <laughs> well, I, I really do want to make a comment on the Royal Doll situation. Would you know? It's terrible what they've done. I think. I mean, it is a form of censorship. But and the free speech communities uh, have certainly expressed our views about that to the publisher. But it is a business decision they made, and the person that are the group of persons and that control Royal Doll's uh, copyright. So people make business decisions all the time. We don't always have to like it. Um, I'm really dismayed by what they've done, having these two different books, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I think that um, 
that's sending a greater message to kids. You don't like something, just yank a word out and replace it or whatever. And uh, I would rather say to a kid, you know, how could this, how would you say this or something? So I I am really dismayed by what's happening with Royal Doll, but at the same time, they are a private company and we can't, um, we can express our opinion to them. And But it's a business decision. It's all about money. I, I have to say, it's all about money. But my problem with, you know, we've had people try to rewrite Huckleberry Finn over the years so it could be used, quote, unquote, in high schools. Uh, I, I think by high school, we could help them understand when that book was written and understand. I, we're doing kids a disservice. Uh, they are smart. Kids are intelligent. If we ask them to see, they will see. And, and I think that um, we're doing them a disservice if we start pulling things all of the time because we're afraid somebody's going to be offended by it. Someone's always offended by something. And um, so I guess that's my broad view of censorship, too. And you can tell by the books I've written my stance on it because I, I sit here and fight censorship of nation all the time. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> I think we that readers are a lot savvier than we give them credit for, and even children can read something and say like, "Oh, back then that's the way they did it," or "That's this is the way people said this." Um, okay, you know they're gonna get it. Um, I mean, there's a there's a Palm Pilot in the first Gossip Girl book. What's a Palm Pilot like? Nobody, <laughs> um, but when I wrote the book, people were using Palm Pilots. Um, and actually, even in, in, I'm pretty in, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Um, Margaret's dad has a stack of hustlers on, on the coffee table, I think, in the living room. It was the 70s, you know. <laughs> that was, it seems weird now, but that was, it was the 70s. It's whatever, fine. Um, and, yeah, I think, I mean, as an author, I, the idea of somebody, you know, tweaking my books after I die is a little creepy. Um, and banning books is a crime, as far as I'm concerned. I'm getting upset. Um, <laughs> but um, I actually had the same experience or a similar experience to in the, in the, in the documentary, um, Judy Bloom is sort of defending her books on national television. I think it's Pat Buchanan. Is that right? Pat Buchanan is um, they're yes. talking about Deanie, and he's he says, you know, this is a book about masturbation. I mean, sorry, yes, masturbation. And she's like horrified. You know, it, it, I didn't write a book about masturbation. I wrote a book about a, you know, a beautiful girl who has scoliosis and um, anyway, she's just dismayed. And the most dismaying part is that there's no way he read the book. Um, and uh, so I had a similar experience where I was, I had to be on the Today Show defending Gossip Girl, which was being accused of being about sex and shopping. Um, <laughs> and I was all equally dismayed because the, they had this very conservative um, psych, child psychologist on with me, and he had not clearly not read any of the books. And it's just that, that sort of like you know somebody found the word like 
heinous and Dini or in any book or and just let oh ban it, you know. And it's just like, I mean, it's 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 really um, upsetting. Nobody should be choosing who reads what. I I can go back to Jason Reynolds if I may for a minute because we we t we interviewed everyone about how they felt about contemporary book banning, about book banning in the eighties and contemporary book banning and. Even when we interviewed everyone, which is already a year, a year and a half ago, things had not progressed to the frenzy that it is now. Um, but one thing he said that always stuck with me was, you know, kids are always ready to lean into complicated conversations. It's the parents that are not okay having those conversations. It's the insecurities of the parents that stop them from wanting their kids to have those conversations. But they're already they're already having those conversations. I mean, I show my kids movies from the 80s that I loved that do not hold up. And we talk about how they don't hold up. You know, there are some things that are still true to the high school experience. And there are some things that you could never do today and you shouldn't. But I think it's it's important to, you know, for those works of art to be a springboard for discourse. And whether those are books or movies or songs, I mean, things that were written in the 1800s, 1900s. There's so many ways to introduce kids to ideas that they might not have on TikTok or YouTube shorts or you know Snapchat. And by the way, that's another great thing. Oh my God, I'm turning into the Jason Reynolds disciple here, but he did make this point about that we didn't use in the film. Why are we going after books right now? Why are we going after words on a page, stories that encourage kids to use their imaginations when they're out there trolling each other online watching violence, watching sex. I mean, they're, they're, they're exposed to everything and, and they're terribly cruel to each other online. And yet we're going to go after the stories that allow them to use their minds in a different way. It seems it's kind of outrageous that that's where the conversation is now around books. Thank you. Before we jump um, to some Q&A, just kind of as a last word for you three, would love to know where do you turn for inspiration for your own storytelling? There's a lot of media out there these days and a lot of world to observe. So where do you, where do you turn? Um, well, I mean, I think I said before it is reading, but it could be just a little thing. I mean, it could like, I constantly get inspiration from just like some little snippet of something I read in the newspaper. Um, I also am a, I like to run, I'm a jogger and I run without listening to like podcasts or music or anything because I kind of like feel like I need to be observing whatever I'm running past and I'm listening to my own thoughts more than anything else. It's kind of like meditation. Um, and I, I have, I feel like I have these sort of writer epiphanies when I'm moving. Um, and so when I, even if I'm just like walking to the subway, I, I, I have this thing where I can't, I can't listen to anything. I need to like hear what's going on in the world and listen to my own thoughts. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, if I were a, um, talking to a younger aspiring writer, I would say like, take out your headphones. Um, but I always, I sound like, I sound so old fashioned, but um, anyway, I, I feel like inspiration is out there. Um, and I'm always having epiphanies when I'm running and moving and walking around the city. And, you know, I just had like three on Friday. Um, <laughs> epiphanies. <laughs> so, um, 
yes, inspiration is everywhere you turn. You just have to be observant. That's awesome. Leah? Yeah, I, I mean, that. I was going to say something really similar. I, I think for me, it's a combination of marinating in media and absorbing all of the ways people are transforming, you know, cinema, transforming TV, podcasting, movies, books, um, and just observing. I mean, as a documentary filmmaker, that's what I do. I observe and then I take little pieces of what I've observed and try to string it together into a narrative that makes sense for other people to then observe. Um, but I, I, I remember Judy talking about like eavesdropping and a Howard Johnson's one time and taking that conversation and kind of putting it directly into one of her books, maybe changing a little bit, but I'm constantly eavesdropping. And it's funny, I was with my mom really sweetly last weekend at the Miami Film Festival. She still lives in Jacksonville. She came and met me there. And as we were walking around Miami, she said to me, and she's never said this before, and it's not so profound, but look around like every single person has a story here aren't you curious about what their stories are and i and that's what i do all the time as i'm on the subway you know or at a park and i'm just like oh i wonder and like making up story like what could their story be where did they come from who are they who are they in conflict with what are their goals in life what are what's bothering them what are they feeling so i think having that open mind to listen to your own thoughts but also be curious about the other people who are around you those things inspire me And Pat? I would say the same thing, observation, listening. Um, but, uh, and, and I get a lot of inspiration from books because I'm such an avid reader and, and, and I write about books. So that's, you know, that, that's what I do. So it always goes back to the book. Thank you. I'm going to go and pull up the slides once again. And I just wanted to kind of summarize before we get to the questions, um, give you guys some resources on the topic of banned books since that was raised and it's a large message in the documentary. You know, Judy Bloom is a huge advocate who has fought for years against censorship. Um, the NCAC actually awarded her their Free Speech Defender Lifetime Achievement Award in 2001. But now moving forward, the award will be named the Judy Bloom Free Speech Defender Lifetime Achievement Award in honor of her, which I found just wonderful. Um, but do check out some of these organizations. A lot of them have resources for ways for you personally to get involved, but also things you can do in your classroom to encourage kids to employ their own civic responsibility. And then just on Friday, um, this post came up on my Instagram from Upworthy, and I just thought it was a great one to conclude with. So many say that books can act as mirrors of society as well as windows to the world, which I love that framing. But in Denmark, apparently, there are these libraries where you can not only check out books, but you can borrow a human for 30 minutes to hear their stories. So these human libraries, as they're aptly called, allow people to connect and share their personal stories as a way to combat prejudices and broaden horizons. So just wanted to share that. I'm sure some of you saw that. And then what I'd love to do is I'm gonna close out of the slides and go to our question parking lot and pull some of these for the next five to 10 minutes. Um, so first one, Cecily, 
Did you ever have moments of writer's block and how did you get through the writer's block? Um, Taylor asked, she said she's interested in writing or he, sorry, is interested in writing too, but get they get worried about that writer's block. Um, I'm actually trying right now to come out of like, I think the pandemic was, um, I sort of, I don't know what happened to me, but <laughs> I'm only just getting back into writing now. I did a lot of reading, um, but, um, and I, I had a, a book come out sort of in the beginning of the pandemic. And then um, I think I, I just went into sort of hibernation um, as did many of us. But um, I would, I mean, it always comes back to this, but I would say read. I, I actually feel like, just to like warm myself up to writing in the morning, if you're, if, or not in the morning, I'm not even a morning, I don't, I'm, I'm telling a fib, I'm not a morning writer. Um, I do everything else first. I, <laughs> um, and I'm lucky to not have a um, like office that I have to go to, but I get up very, very early in the morning, but I don't actually get to writing until like three o'clock in the afternoon. And then if I could, I would, write until, I don't know, two in the morning, because that's when I feel the most creative. But I have a family and all sorts of other things. So that rarely ever happens. Um, but just to warm up, I start reading either the something that I'm already reading, or I just grab a book off the bookshelf. Sometimes I just read a poem. Um, I love poetry. I used to write poetry. Um, and, or I'll, I mean, I do, I read the newspaper every day. Just there's, there's something will sort of gets the wheels churning. Um, and if I also, if I'm in the middle of something, I go back and read sort of the last bit that I wrote and I start, you know, you can't help yourself, right? You start like tweaking it. And then that's like warming up. That's like playing your scales, you know, if, if you think of it as an instrument. Um, and so once you get, and then once I get warmed up, then I'm like, oh, chapter two, you know, but I mean, that's like the best case scenario. It doesn't always, you know, sometimes there are just days where you have to like be kind to yourself and be like, I don't know what I'm doing. I can't do this right now. I'm going to go walk the dog for the 50th time. Um, <laughs> or I'm going to make a pie, you know, <laughs> but just don't. I think it's just like you don't you can't force yourself to write. So if you're not feeling it, um, get up and do something else. And then when you are feeling it, also drop what you're doing and write it down. Because I keep a pen and pencil next to my bed and I have so many notebooks filled with I, I wrote it in the dark. Sometimes I write the words like on top of each other, but like I can kind of figure out what I was thinking or remember what I was thinking. Sometimes it makes no sense in the morning or whatever, in the afternoon, whenever I get to writing. But do, don't think you're going to remember your wonderful thought that you had because you might not write it down. Good advice. And I like the analogy to the warm up with the music scales. Um, Leah, next question is for you. So I'm going to combine two questions. Can you talk about the post-production of the film? How many hours of A footage versus B footage did you have? Did you have a clear sense of what you wanted the shape of the film to look like? And another um, 
attendee also asked, like, how do you know how to structure it chronologically versus thematic? Those are great questions. Um, a documentary is always made in the editing room. So we were really lucky to work with two wonderful editors, one who we had in the beginning of the project, and then a second editor came in with fresh eyes after we had a rough cut. So that was, it, it was so helpful to have both of their perspectives um, and, a, and a really wonderful consulting editor too, who is a friend who lives in town here. Um, so I think we always knew that this film was going to be somewhat structured somewhat traditionally. Um, chronologically, we were going to be telling Judy's life story, and we wanted to choose books that, um, you know, that sort of intersected, that were in conversation with moments in her life and important turning points in her life. And so we sort of strayed from the chronology in a few places where we went back to her childhood or we went back to her young adulthood, back to her marriage, her father's death, like I think just three times, but otherwise it's a pretty traditional chronology. Um, and so I think Davina and I were really hoping that we could, I don't know, throw everything out and make something that was entirely new and really wild and cinematic. And that wasn't this film, like maybe another project, but we, 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 we needed to honor Judy's story and to honor Judy's work. And so that's how we decided to structure. And, and in terms of how many hours of footage we had, and I actually don't know. Um, uh, I'm so sorry. I don't know. I should know that number, but I don't know. It, it's not as the um, ratio of unused footage to used footage is definitely not as high as it was in our first film. But that was because we um, it stretched out over many years, very part time, independent. Like when money came in, we'd shoot a little, and then we'd have to raise more money again. And um, we were working other jobs, anyways. It, it it was a very different process. This was. A film that was funded from the beginning. Um, we were so lucky to work with Amazon from the beginning. And so we had a very tight schedule and um, we had to get everything done in that short window. And we had a great team of producers who kept us on track-ish. We did we did go over schedule a bit. Um, so it was, I, I'm sorry, I don't know exactly that answer, but but it wasn't as high as it could be for like a, a documentary, an observational documentary where you're following someone in their daily life or you're following a competition or many people through a competition. You know, there's so many different genres of documentary because this was a lot of archives. We did have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of archives um, and hundreds and hundreds of documents and letters. So there was that whole piece of it too that that wasn't like footage we shot, but other things we needed to go through and figure out what to select from to put into the final film. That's great. Thank you. I encourage everybody to go on judybloom.com too, because she shares some of her archived items, which is kind of fun to see. Pat, last question for you, and it's a two-parter. Um, one, can we get the name of the book that you mentioned? I believe you said the last name was Welty. Oh, Eudora um, Welty, Southern writer. Um, uh, the book is One Writer's Beginnings. One writer's and it was it's actually essays that she wrote um and about writing and it was amazing it's amazing terrific i'm putting that in the chat for everybody and then the second part was where you've gotten to know judy um let just if you could tell us a little bit more about her or maybe something that you discovered through the documentary that you didn't know before oh wow <laughs> 
know. I don't know. I, I don't think that, I think I, for the most part, knew most of what was in the documentary about her, but I have known her for so many years, and that's probably why. Um, I think that probably maybe one thing I didn't know was how profoundly her father's death and, and you know, influenced her at the time. Um, and, um, I mean, she was relatively young, and, and so was I when my father died. And I think you don't realize, you know, what a profound effect that has on you. Um, for the most part, I think I pretty much, you know, knew, knew everything. Um, I'm trying to think what I could tell you that's not there. And I, I, I don't know that... Um, I mean, we keep we keep showing up at the same places. We, you know, because we both are such free speech um, advocates, and and so we fight censorship together. And in fact, she just called a few weeks ago with with uh, wanting me to help her compare the 1980s to now, because you know, 1980s is when she was going through such a tough time with her books and. And it's, it's in many ways worse now, but a lot of it's because of the internet. So we talked through all of that. Like I said, I'm just so jealous that you get to call Judy Bloom a good friend of yours. <laughs> yeah. So um, before I give a big thank you, which is coming, I just wanted everybody to earmark in your plan books that Friday, April 21st is when Judy Bloom Forever will be available on Prime Video for everybody to view. So do earmark that. We're just over a month out, which is exciting. Um, but really, thank you to you three for making the time to join us today. And thank you to everybody who's participating and watching the webinar. We know as educators how busy your lives are. So really appreciate it. Um, happy National Write Your Story Day tomorrow. Everybody should get started on writing their own story. Um, and thanks to Judy Bloom, as always, for her inspiration. So don't forget to leave us feedback. We'd love to hear it. Um, and again, April 21st, Judy Bloom forever. But thank you, Cecily, Leah, and Pat so much. It's been an honor getting to know you guys and excited to learn more from you in that documentary. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank Thanks you for so your great for questions and for everyone for coming. We hope you enjoyed this EdWeb podcast. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.